the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Yes, good afternoon. He is indeed. They checked my ID at the door and let me in. Of course, I own the place, so <laughs> why not, right? Continuing to broadcast from home, as they say, and... and um, Missing doing radio from a radio station. In any event, good to have you with us for this Thursday, June 18th edition of Lifeline, five after the hour. And as we get things underway, pretty heavy agenda tonight. Coming up in a little bit, Dr. Jane Orient, Executive Director of the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons, will honor us with her presence, get you a bit of an update on the COVID-19 situation, and um, ascertain whether or not the um, the new order issued by the governor of all face masks all the time, everywhere, indoors, outdoors, go to bed, wake up in the morning, go to sleep with them, whether or not it's really going to make any kind of a significant difference. We'll talk about that, plus the apparent spike of COVID-19, just as America is attempting to get underway and opening back up again. All that coming up later on in tonight's program. We lead off, though, with the, the ongoing issue. We talked about it at length last night. This will be a dialogue that I think perhaps is overdue and Americans need to be addressing. We need to come to terms with so many aspects of what have transpired in our nation, really in some respects that's been there bubbling below the surface for <laughs> millennia, decades, centuries, certainly. And uh, <clears throat> now that we're beginning to collectively confront many of the challenges that our nation is facing in terms of racial healing, racial reconciliation, we're also beginning to perhaps grapple with the idea that we need some reforms when it comes to policing and relationships between local communities and the police. Well, recently a good friend of ours issued some remarks on the topic of police reform, and we've asked him to come on the program and share some of those insights with us, he is California Congressman Tom McClintock, representing our great state to Washington, D.C., from the 4th District. And, Congressman, always a delight to have you with us. Oh, Craig, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me back. Let's get down to some of the, uh, some of the brass tacks, as it would here. Uh, you know, I, I think we're all beginning to recognize that there's failures and challenges that we've been kind of sweeping under the proverbial rug for a very, very long time. And, and I was struck... In your uh, recent remarks delivered within the last week on this very topic of police reforms, um, that you find four key areas, certainly uh, maybe not the be-all and end-all, but a good starting place for four fundamental areas for reform. And one of them is one that I bet seldom do Americans even consider. You talked in your comments about the doctrine of qualified immunity, and I actually had to look that one up. And I bet a lot of Americans will as well. Talk to us a bit about your insights on that and why the doctrine as it stands is problematic. Well, the, the doctrine itself uh, um, it was made up by the Earl Warren Court in 1967, back in 1871. 
uh, Congress passed what was called the KKK Act. It was aimed at Southern officials who were violating people's rights under color of law. It basically said if somebody, if an official does that to you, you can come into federal court and sue them to enforce your constitutional rights. That's very important because for every right, there is a, there has to be a remedy. And prior to the KKK Act in the South, uh, 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 the freed slaves had no recourse uh, when their constitutional rights were being denied. Um, this is uh, what that solved, and that law stood until 1967. When the Earl Court, the Earl Warren Court said, you know, we're going to change that law, even though we don't have the authority to, we're going to take it anyway. So they modified it to excuse anyone who was acting in good faith. And then uh, in 1982, the court further modified it to excuse anyone who was violating the law, unless a court decision in a virtually identical circumstance uh, 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 said it was illegal. Uh, so you know, that has led to all sorts of terrible problems. For example, when police were executing a, a search warrant in Fresno, uh, they um, they stole two hundred twenty-five thousand dollars from a person's home. That person could not sue them because of qualified immunity. And by the way, it's the same doctrine that has kept Tea Partiers who who uh, were harassed and and. Uh, um, pursued by the IRS because of their political beliefs, shouldn't they be able to sue Lewis, Lois Lerner, uh, who was who's directing that effort, and any of her superiors who were involved? Uh, no, why can't Carter Page sue Andrew McCabe for destroying his life? Qualified immunity. Um, so, basically, we we got we got along fine without uh, uh, qualified immunity from 1871 to 1967, um, and and if we were to eliminate uh, qualified immunity. It simply places police officers under the same requirements as ordinary citizens. Uh, uh, ordinary citizens have many of the police powers the police exercise. The only difference is citizens could be held liable for violating rights, uh, but police officers can't. Um, and as I said, for every right, there's got to be a remedy. This was the remedy until it was um, in, uh, gutted by, by the Warren Court. The light of day is certainly critically important when you're dealing with anything that relates to touching on the life, the rights of the general public. One of the proposals that you talk about is the notion that police records must be open to the public. Now, you're talking about the actual records of police officers themselves or in a more broader sense? Well, right. They, uh, uh, police officers are discharging um, uh, powers given to them by the public. They are working for the public. Um, uh, how they are using those powers ought to be available for the public to see. This is what's been uh, uh, protecting uh, a lot of bad cops in the system is, uh, uh, first of all, you have to jump through an enormous number of hoops uh, to try to get a disciplinary action, particularly if you need to dismiss a bad apple. But since those records are usually uh, sealed, um, they just hop to another police department. Uh, uh, that's not right. You know, we have an Open Records Act for all the, the discharge of all of the responsibilities of our elected officials. You have a right to see uh, 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 virtually all of the documents that are involved in, in discharging the powers of the public loans to elected officials. Why shouldn't that same uh, uh, sunlight uh, be involved with those who are discharging powers of life and death in our police departments? And, and certainly, I think that you know the, the public, not only in terms of the best interest, but the fact that we're footing the bill, ought to at least give us some 
opportunity to know who's doing our policing. And if somebody has been fired from six different departments over the course of the last eight or ten years, I think the people in that local community have a right to know that information. One of the other things that you touch on, and boy, this has been a controversial issue from the beginning, and I understand sort of the... The, the the excuse for all of this, Congressman, was, well, you know, following all of our military engagement overseas, we were left with this huge surplus of military equipment, far more than what practically the United States military could use or maintain on U.S. soil. And so why not make it available to police departments to assist them in, in sort of the more severe degrees of policing when it comes to SWAT teams and things of that sort? But a lot of people have seen these vehicles on the street and said, you know, when suddenly I can't identify the military from what appears to be paramilitary organizations, leading, meaning the local PD, that becomes problematic. Well, it, it, it doesn't, and again, it leads to abuse. The 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 fundamental principles of policing were laid down by a fellow by the name of uh, uh, Sir Robert Peel. I think it was in 1829, as I recall. Uh, and and the, the the core foundation of his philosophy um, is that the police are the public, and the public are the police. The only difference is the police are hired full-time to look after uh, the enforcement of our laws, although that is the same responsibility held by every citizen. They can't do it full-time, so they they, uh, hire a police department to help them. Uh, That's the relationship between the police and the community. Um, uh, Turning police departments into paramilitary organizations fundamentally alters that relationship uh, that was set down by Peel uh, uh, so long ago. Um, you know, weapons that are used on a battlefield need to be limited to the battlefield. Now, yes, there are a lot of transfers that I think are perfectly acceptable. I mean, basically anything that's available to a private citizen ought to be available to the police departments. Uh, uh, vests, binoculars, um, uh, uh, you know, conventional weaponry. Uh, I've got no problems with any of that. But when you start transferring tanks and rocket launchers and explosives that are meant for a battlefield to a local community police department, there's serious problem there in my judgment yeah aside from the local military depot that has no business on the streets of america to be sure Uh, the fourth and final point and and maybe one that in some respects might be the big sticking point because clearly when police are doing an investigation they're attempting to uh, serve a bench warrant they're trying to get the the bad guys so to speak the element of surprise often works to their advantage but you say that this notion of so-called no-knock warrants have proven to be dangerous, and certainly we've all heard these horrible stories of an error and somebody read the the order wrong and they went to the house next door and instead of getting the bag drug lords out, they woke up a you know a couple in their nineties with you know bursting in and knocking the door down how, how do we balance the importance sometimes even to the point of protecting lives of police of the elements of surprise versus this notion that no-knock warrants seemingly are out of control? Well, I don't think you can use surprise when you are violating a a, a person's home. Uh, You know, William Pitt, centuries ago, pointed out that that, uh, no matter how humble a home may be, he said the roof may leak, he said the rain may enter, the wind may enter, but the king of England with all of his forces cannot enter. That is a fundamental foundation of our liberty as a people. 
the only time the sanctity of a person's home may be violated is through a judicial warrant. And if you are going to exercise that kind of authority, you have got to announce that authority before entering. I, I don't know about you, but so many, if, if armed intruders break into my house at 2 in the morning, there's going to be a gunfight. Yeah. Uh, if they yeah. have a legal right to do that, they have to announce that authority in advance. They have to show me the warrant uh, before I am obligated to allow them into my home, or at least that was the vision of the American founders. And, and you're certainly, as you point out, you're, 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 you're setting a powder keg um, in in motion here when there is a no knock and they suddenly burst in because as you say as I mentioned either because of mistaken location or whatever the reason most people naturally are going to say somebody has suddenly bursted into my home I don't know if this is an attempt to rob me a home invasion what the deal is so you know you're you're going to meet firepower with firepower because you're not only protecting your castle you're protecting your family. Well, exactly right. And, and by the way, all these elements were in the Democrats' version of the bill. They could have gotten bipartisan support for it, I think, if they'd worked with us. But instead, they incorporated these points, which I certainly support. I don't know if all Republicans support them. Qualified immunity is, is very controversial right now. But they could have gotten significant broad bipartisan support, except they then had to pile into this legislation this long laundry list of, of uh, leftist demands, of uh, the, 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 the sum total of which treats every police department exactly the same. And as I said, that is entirely contrary to Peel's principles. The police department is an extension of the community. Of uh, New York City is a very different place than Weed Patch, California. Of uh, the, 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 the needs of the community are different. The culture of the community is different. You cannot apply, you cannot basically federalize all law enforcement in this country and expect anything to, good, uh, to come from it. So once again, the yeah. left overreached, and that's why it was a, a party-line vote uh, uh, in, the, uh, in the Judiciary Committee, and I suspect will be a party-line vote on the House floor. Well, we appreciate the time and sharing some clarification of, of these insights. And uh, they're, they're important issues, I think, that all of us need to not only understand but get behind. Look, this is a very complex, complicated, involved issue. It's not going to be solved easily overnight. It's not going to be solved in one full swoop. Um, full swoop, rather. It's going to need to be done over time and, and cautiously and judiciously. And as Congressman McClintock so aptly points out, uh, this is not a one-size-fits-all because the problem is not identical. While it might be uh, certainly uh, widespread, it's not unique or, or identical in every single community. And so many of the answers need to need to be able to bend and mold based on what the challenges are in each individual community. There is Congressman Tom McClintock representing our state from the 4th District and all Californians to Washington, D.C. Information, by the way, on Tom McClintock's remarks on the issue of police reform can be found on his website, mcclintock.house.gov. Our thanks again to Congressman Tom McClintock for the time and always doing a great job on behalf of us in Washington. All right, 520, let's get you an update on traffic. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, let's get a COVID-19 update from one of the most respected medical 
experts in America today. She's Dr. Jane Orient, Executive Director of the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons, also author of the best-selling Your Doctor Is Not In, Healthy Skepticism About National Healthcare. Dr. Orient, great to have you with us. I know your time is tight here, so let's get right down to cases. First off, I hear that in the New England Journal of Medicine, there is a, a new survey, a new study that, uh, albeit the, the authors say is crude but possibly significant, that they've discovered those with blood type A seem to, once diagnosed with COVID-19, have the most severe symptoms, and yet those with blood type O seem to have the least any notion as to what the potential correlation with blood types may be and the impact of COVID-19? I think it must have something to do with the ease that the virus has in penetrating the cells of people who have mm. a certain blood type, just a genetic predisposition. It's not something you can do anything about, of course. It's just something, an interesting observation. And we're certainly learning that genetics seem to have a, a great deal to do with this in terms of those that seemingly get exposed and go about their day-to-day -day business never even realizing that they've been carrying COVID-19, while others, as we know, have um, pretty severe symptoms. As the nation has been undergoing the opening, reopening process here, we know that it's been um, kind of mixed success here and there. States like uh, California, for example, Florida, that as we've opened up, are also beginning to see spikes in cases. Uh, today here in California, we had 4,165 new cases. The governor has now issued an order that people are required to wear masks in most indoor settings and outdoors as well when distancing is not possible. How effective do you think all of this is? And, and does it pretend to the idea that some of these states that are facing some challenges, some increase in COVID-19, are not doing a good enough job when it comes to policing the use of face masks? There is very poor evidence that face masks do a lot of good, and they can do some harm because they do decrease the amount of oxygen in your blood. The, the evidence is poor. People are saying, well, there was an article in, in the prestigious journal PNAS that shows this. But the, if you look at the article, it really is very poor science. It may cut down the amount of virus that you put into the environment if you, if you are infected. Of course, it makes no difference whatsoever if you aren't infected and wearing a cloth mask does not protect you against other people's germs. So I think that, as many people have said, it's a talisman, a, a ritual making you feel that you're doing something. Meanwhile, they're sort of just completely overlooking the potential effect of these massive protests, rallies, um, riots, or whatever they involve, with a lot of people getting together and shouting shoulder to shoulder, maybe wearing masks, maybe not. And, and even the people who are doing contact tracing now are not asking the people who got infected, well, were you at a protest? So how and it would seem to me that that would be information that health officials really want to have, because clearly as we've watched things unfold over the last, my goodness, going on three weeks now, um, at least certainly here in California, we've seen a vast percentage of those particip participating that were not wearing masks. And I would think all of that is, is going to lend itself to a significant spike within, you know, the next week or two, I would suppose. Well, you would think so. I mean, that's how the, the virus is transmitted, by people shouting 
and being close together and singing and chanting and things like that, you would expect that there might be a spike, but for some reason, it's a danger for you to go to church or to go to a, a friendly dinner, but okay to to go to one of these uh, these big shouting events. Uh, the finally, doctor, as we see this uh, continuing to impact uh, life here in America, from where we first started talking about this back in March and seeing the case level where it is today. Do, do you get a sense that we're going to begin to see this wane, even though we've seen some of these more recent spikes and reopening? Is that kind of the, the lingering impact? What are your thoughts? Well, viral epidemics always wane eventually. And that will happen this time, too. It, it's happened, I think, in every instance. Um, with there with, And usually there's no vaccine. Probably smallpox is the only one that arguably was ended by vaccine, but smallpox epidemics ended by themselves many, many times before we had a vaccine. But what's really what's really outrageous from my point of view is that we have a cheap, effective, safe, long-established, readily available drug called hydroxychloroquine, and the government, especially at the local level and the state level, are doing everything they can to keep people from being able to get this medication that could probably stop the epidemic very quickly, just as it has in Algeria and Morocco and Costa Rica, Honduras, El Salvador, Turkey, and other places that are using this medication. And ironically, as you say that, our our own FDA recently rescinded the the emergency use order. So it's uh, it, it's amazing to me some of the inconsistencies coming out of Washington. Dr. Rorian, I know you've got to run to another conference call. We appreciate you being on with us today to give us a brief update. Dr. Jane Orient, Executive Director of the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons. Information online at AAPSO. Oh, let me do that again. AAPSonline.org. Thank and this is easy. easier for you than it is for me. <laughs> Association of American Physicians and Surgeons, aapsonline.org. 5.30 from KFAX. Let's get you updated on some traffic once again from the KFAX Traffic Center. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. As we continue to dissect the events that are unfolding across America and the growing awareness of the challenges that this nation has insofar as race relations, we're certainly looking to a lot of areas to try and gain understanding. We've talked earlier with Congressman McClintock about um, a handful of starter reforms that need to be done when it comes to policing in America. Um, clearly, there is plenty of, um, well, shall we say, blame to go all the way around. But we talk about this. We look at things such as the failure of government, the broader failure of society, failure of police, as I mentioned, failure of parents. And I wonder, maybe then, too, do we even include the church on that list? I mean, after all, we're supposed to be leaders when it comes to reconciliation, having experienced the most precious reconciliation of all, and that is between God and we ourselves, his 
fallen creation. But what about the notion, too, of maybe some softness, that a lot of what we see here today are hallmarks of the effects of sin. And so then the question is begged, has the church, (coughs) pardon me, been effective enough at preaching the good news of the gospel and calling sin, sin? Joining me now with some insights is Pastor Sam Rohrer, president of the American Pastors Network. And Pastor Sam, always great to have you with us. Uh, Craig, it's a pleasure to be with you again today. You know, we're, we're grappling and wrestling with a lot of issues, and certainly there are conferences and meetings and Senate and, and congressional hearings, and, and this will go on uh, uh, ad infinitum, no doubt, for a long time to come, and many would argue very overdue. But as we're discussing all of the, uh, the failure points, so to speak, that are contributory to the events that we've seen unfolding on the streets of America over the last three weeks, and certainly much of what is sadly the, the life experience of living in America So for so many African Americans. Uh, the, the one arena that doesn't seem to be getting near enough attention, um, at least in my mind, is uh, addressing the question, how much of this at the very core really comes back to a, a central issue, and that is, we're living in a fallen world. This is the result when sin abounds. What do you think? Hmm. Uh, Craig, I don't think you could have said that better. Um, I think that when we we deal with issues in this country, and I think so many times even in our own lives, we've gotten in the habit for a long time of uh, being far more uh, enamored uh, with the with the shaping of symptoms rather than the diagnosing of root problems. And uh, put it in the COVID terms, <laughs> if we could. Uh, at the heart, we have a, we all are possessed with a fatal virus, and it's called sin. Um, and there's only one way to cure that, uh, and that is what you talked about: is uh, an understanding, a relationship, a redemption, uh, repentance before Jesus Christ, who can take and. Um, uh, make our relationship right, but we still live in bodies that are plagued by flesh. The flesh, the world, the devil, uh, all compete, we know, even in the life of the redeemed uh, person. But the failure, I believe, to look at what we're talking about here as God would look at it, um, for a, uh, guarantees us no solution. Uh, and what we look at, whether we look at rebellion on the streets or whether we look at a, um, uh, a very uh, high degree, in some cases, of uh, bias and prejudice racially, um, or whether you look to Washington and you see the enormous amounts of um, bribery and corruption that, uh, that, uh, that plague our political system and those who are within it, to, uh, to looking at a Supreme Court. Uh, just on Monday that made a uh, usurped power of the legislature and, and made a decision from the bench and, and in effect, going um, to redefine uh, human sexuality, what God views. Whatever you look at, it has at its core the issue of sin that plagues us all. All have sinned to come short of the glory of God. We all um, have um, that um, built-in depravity in our heart. But you know, what I'm describing right there is a biblical worldview. It is, though, what was once better understood in this country, but 
but, but Craig, we've gotten so far away from actually looking at life from God's perspective and uh, saying all have sinned, all have come short of the glory of God. Uh, but at the same time, knowing that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth, anyone, all people, this is the hope of redemption. This is that part of a biblical worldview uh, uh, to which the world has no answer. Yet the Church, Christians, God's Word, does hold the answer. So we cannot be afraid to deal with uh, and to diagnose the problems of the day, whatever they are, and go to the heart and say, at the issue is a heart problem. And, and, and when it comes to the heart, the only, only remedy is uh, the Jesus Christ. But it is uh, the remedy. So that's what I think of when you talk about what should the Church do. Well, the Church is the bearer of that message. It is the truth that sets one free. But if we don't tell the truth, or we don't tell the whole truth, as God sees it, Craig, we only, I would submit, contribute to the problem by, by arguing about how we can shape the symptoms rather than going back and saying, at the very core, we've got an issue with sin, and it's a relationship with God, and when we get that vertical relationship squared away, then it makes it more possible to deal with the horizontal relationships. Most of what we're seeing happening today is on the horizontal, but it has a start, and we've got a vertical problem with God himself. Yeah, and you know, that that's such an important point, because I know some that would be dismissive of this notion saying, well, wait a minute, you know, if the church is going to be engaged in, in uh, racial reconciliation, uh, you know, get your own house in order, meaning that we, we have uh, such a sense of divisiveness from a denominational standpoint, and, and even Martin Luther King said, you'll find America no more divided racially than she is Sunday mornings at 11 o'clock. Now, that certainly is changing, particularly in, in major metropolitan areas like yours and ours here in California. California. But that said, the notion here that we we have to address the fact that the major problems that we're seeing unfolding on the hor- on the the uh, the horizontal plane are are indicative of the problem that this nation has that we as people have with relationship on the vertical plane. And unless we get our relationship with God in order, the rest of this is going to continue to be a struggle, won't it? Yeah, well, it absolutely is, and uh, it there there is no solution vertically, except for God's solution. The world doesn't offer it. Atheists of the world can't offer it. Um, no other, no other ideology, no other, no other, I want to say religion from that perspective, deals with how to establish that vertical relationship through Jesus Christ, obviously, because that, that is the, the express Christian message. But we, we, we are increasingly intimidated and I think the world uh, is seeking to do that, to intimidate those who know the truth, to intimidate the true believer in Jesus Christ into thinking that they have nothing to say, that they cannot say it, and to limit what they say. So maybe if truth is spoken, and I think I, I've heard so much, of uh, even from those in the pulpit, where maybe portions of truth that we stop short of going all the way that needs to be there, that which starts with this matter of sin, and say we all are in that boat. It's not wrong to say 
even though I am a Christian, I battle the sin uh, that's, that, uh, that, that, you know, that, that comes, up, comes from within, and that we deal with. There's nothing wrong with that. Matter of fact, that's what the world needs to hear, that even the Christian uh, must run to Jesus Christ daily, regularly, in submission to his, of, his, of his thinking and his actions to bring it into conformity with what God says. I mean, to put it in a secular term, our founders... Our founders in the beginning of this country, many of them, William Penn here in Pennsylvania, they said very, very clearly, you can't have physical freedom until you, until you first experienced uh, spiritual freedom. That's the vertical part. And the horizontal part of it requires that each of us voluntarily disciplines ourselves to God's moral law. They said the Ten Commandments, but that's the basis for our legal system. But they said it had to happen individually as citizens and those in positions of authority had to do the same thing or you could not ever achieve civil freedom you would ultimately revert to where you had to have a police officer standing on every corner in order to try and maintain uh, order are we not seeing that kind of thing today and it, it it hasn't changed truth hasn't changed human nature has not changed, but thankfully, thank the Lord, the truth of God's Word and the ability for God to save the sinner, any of all, any and all, hasn't changed either. And this message of reconciliation, as we discuss it from the pulpits of America, as we have dialogue with each other around the water cooler, did we do that around the water cooler anymore? Probably not. Uh, six feet apart in the office when you're in the office and, and at a distance and on the phone, as we talk about all of the challenges that America is facing right now with relationships with each other on the horizontal plane, it is important to be mindful as Pastor Sam Rohr has underscored, that so much of this indicative of a failure to address the need for a healthy, vibrant relationship on the vertical plane. And short of recognizing our sinful nature, our jealous nature, our prideful nature, that plays out in so many things that we're seeing capturing the news right now, short of confessing and seeing reconciliation on the vertical plane, it's going to be hopeless for all of us to see any improvement along the horizontal plane. We've got to get our acts together, and we need to do it now. Pastor Sam Rohr, president of the American Pastors Network. Information available on the web at AmericanPastorsNetwork.net. Well, we're here at 547, and I suppose we should do the... Uh, uh, the decent thing is it were and get a look at traffic. Let's do that right now from the KFAX Traffic Center. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Well, before all this mess began and we were dealing with, uh, I don't know, let's see, March, thinking about St. Patrick's Day gatherings, things of this sort, suddenly all of that kind of got uh, pushed by the wayside, and uh, we've, we've remarkably been through such a challenging time here that a lot of the normalcy of life seems to have, have just kind of uh, slipped by the side. Are you hearing anybody talking about poor dad, Father's Day? It's around the corner, you know, this Sunday, in fact, and if you weren't aware of that or hadn't remembered, um, consider this your official notice 
to uh, hop online or however you do your shopping and make sure you look after Dad this uh, this coming Sunday, Father's Day. This is a broader topic, too, as we were just talking with Pastor um, Rohrer a moment ago. There, there are dialogues happening in America today that are very good, very needy, very important, very overdue. May I suggest to you that one of the other dialogues that needs to come back into the forefront as we grapple with everything from health in America to police and community relations to racial relations, what about the family? You know, so often we understand that at the very core of a society is a healthy family, and sadly we've had a long history in America over multiple generations where the family just is not as healthy as it could and should be because the significant paradigm shift that came about in the 1960s, some might argue that it had roots even earlier than that, going back to World War II, but regardless, the paradigm shift that that came about reordered a lot of the structure of the family, and suddenly um, there was almost a conspiracy against dad, and um, some dads being irresponsible took advantage of the opportunity to just say, oh, I'm not important in your view anymore? Okay, and just stepped aside. We are reaping, in many respects, the rewards of that disintegration of the nuclear family and have been for a very long time. So maybe now it's a good time to revisit the concept of fatherhood. Our next guest does so in a very recent column that you'll find on his website, drlarryonline.com. He is a former Washington Times conservative political writer, commentator on social and political news of the day. He is Dr. Larry Fedowa. And Dr. Fedowa, always great to have you with us. Well, good to be here. This uh, this issue of fatherhood, you know, uh, I, I know that we tend to uh, to uh, to um, endear ourselves to to dear old mom, and dad is always kind of taking the back seat. He's the breadwinner. He's the guy who brings home the bacon, all of that. Although in an increasing number of families across America, not even that is true anymore. But as you've if you sat down and you've analyzed in this new column much of where things were in the nuclear family just a few generations ago and where we are today, where do you see as some of the issues that have been contributory towards sort of this um, devaluing of the importance of father in the family? Well, I think it, I think the major event that uh, started, didn't really start, but certainly uh, added uh, significant momentum to that movement was the uh, introduction of uh, oral contraceptives in the uh, 1960s. And I think that that changed the whole perspective on uh, sex sex and roles, the, the roles that people play. And uh, it, it led to a, a period of real promiscuity, among other things. Uh, we also had abortion legalized shortly after that. And, uh, and, of course, we had the feminist movement uh, once women found out that they really didn't have to uh, uh, didn't have to stay home and have children, uh, whether uh, willingly or not. And uh, then that coincided with the Rosie the Ro- Riveter uh, a phenomenon that happened in World War II where women went and took men's jobs found, and proved they could do it. 
and uh, therefore they decided that uh, they didn't really uh, that marriage really wasn't all that exciting, and uh, of course men at first uh, really took advantage of this whole thing. You know, women uh, kind of changed their role from being the guardians of uh, maidenhood and virginity to uh, being just as promiscuous as men. So that really set the tone, I think, for the devaluation of the family and particularly uh, of men in general. And, and, and certainly if you, if you tell somebody they're not needed... Um, some will have a sense of no. I'm going to push my way through here and prove to me, prove to you how necessary I really am. And others will say, "Oh, okay," and just get up and walk out of the room. And 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 sadly, we've seen far more of the latter than the former. Yeah, and and uh, you know, the rising divorce rates, uh, lower birth rates. In fact, the uh, current birth rate. Is uh, so low that we will not duplicate our population, uh, uh, and uh, you know that means that we have a population uh, a decline in, in total population as, in coming years, which of course has enormous impact on the economy and everything else. So uh, it's uh, it's really been a very uh, it's a it's a terrible scourge. And there have been all sorts of uh, really uh, disastrous uh, effects on the fatherless children. Uh, that uh, their a bit of their their proclivity to their of uh, toward uh, drugs and crimes and 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 jail and uh, it's just it's just really devastating. And it's uh, it's that people say that that's that's the origin of the uh, of the whole racial problem uh that's accelerated so much in the last generation but it's it's also true of, of white in, in the white population uh perhaps to a less extent but 75 percent of uh black children are now born out of wedlock and the men are are uh wandering around wondering what they're supposed to be doing well, and sadly, that, that, you know, on a broader sense is indicative cross-culturally in America today, and it's had its, it's, it's had its snowball effect. It really has. And as much as there was a cry for liberation in the 1960s, uh, you know, there's some things that's good to be free from, uh, but when you're free from all sense of, of, of uh, sort of the, uh, the, the controls, as it were, meaning God establishes what the marriage relationship would, should look like, establishes laws in relationship to children should respect their, 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 um, their parents. Parents have an obligation to care for their children, train the child up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. When all of that begins to break down, uh, is it any wonder that you're going to see spillover into so many aspects of culture and society? And and while it may not be causal um, a, a, from a singular viewpoint, um, it, it is certainly contributory in a major fashion that the, the overall sense of devaluing the importance of fatherhood and letting a lot of guys get away with it, quite frankly, um, ha, has has really... Um, created this powder keg where we've seen so much of the nuclear family disintegrate and as a result young men grow up they don't know how to be fathers they don't know how to be husbands 
Uh, women grow up, they equally don't have a clear understanding of what it means to be a wife or to be a godly mother. We take God out of the equation. We take the, the value and responsibility of um, per parenting. Um, suddenly that shift now has this snowball effect, as I said a moment ago, uh, that impacts every aspect of life. Sunday is Father's Day. Maybe an opportunity for us to, to rethink and um, really value uh, the role that God designed for fathers. And I realize there's a lot of bad role models out there and a lot of good role models out there, but we need to use the Lord himself as the one who's going to be the example of exactly what, what true fathering should look like. Dr. Larry Fedowa, former Washington Times conservative political writer, this new article, Who Needs Fathers? Are Fathers Obsolete? Available on Dr. Fedowa's website at drlarryonline.com. That's drlarryonline.com. 602, let's get you updated on some traffic. We head back over to the KFAX Traffic Center for the latest.